to episode 58 of the All Things Strength and Wellness podcast. I'm your host once again, Robbie Burke. And on this episode, I had the pleasure in interviewing Cal Dietz. Cal Dietz is the head Olympic strength and conditioning coach at the University of Minnesota. And he's also the author of Triphasic Training with Ben Peterson. On this episode, me and Cal discussed many things, mainly pertaining to his Triphasic Training book. This was an absolutely brilliant interview, guys. Jam-packed full of information. And I hope you guys really enjoyed Okay, Coach Cal Diaz, it's uh, an absolute pleasure to have you on my podcast. You're someone I've been wanting to get on for the last while. Just first, people who listen who mightn't be too familiar with who you are, just fill us in, Cal. Um, you know what? I'm the head strength coach at the University of Minnesota. We have a number of strength coaches, but I work with many Olympic teams, and uh, I've been in the business probably here uh, total 17, 18 years. Um, I've been here at the University of Minnesota for 15. I have a lot of things going on, and I've been very fortunate to uh, have a lot of great coaches to let me experiment and do some things over the years. And I'm um, just very fortunate to um, try a lot of things with some teams that are very measurable, like track and field and swimming, and ultimately become a better coach that way. And then apply those methods to sports that things that that you can't account for everything, like hockey and basketball and baseball, where there's a lot of variables. You know, but uh, ultimately we, we measure the kids, we make sure they get better, and we've been very fortunate to have a situation. A lot of hard work, but we have a number of things still going with, uh, you know, future analytic stuff such as like catapult and uh, trying to analyze a lot of number of things this year to make sure that those, those types of diagnostic tools and analytics we can, uh, we can, can hopefully make our kids better and uh, show some predictions, especially with stress. You know, I found some amazing things out here in the last few weeks. Maybe we can talk about those later. Yeah, yeah. Just before we go on, just just for my own clarification, your surname, just pronounce it for me. Calvin Dietz. Dietz, because because one, one, one thing one thing I, I, I always never want to do is say someone's name wrong because it's you know everyone it's like yeah. that uh, how to win friends and influence people make sure you get people's names right yeah. you know that kind of way so Cal Dietz. well Dietz you know some people say Dietz but it's Dietz, Dietz. and uh, Dietz. yeah yeah I understand I mean uh, you know I'm not a big stickler on that like yeah listen sure my my second name is is Bork and it's B-O-U-R-K but every time I say like in Ireland some people say Burke and they spell it B-U so it's the same with me like with my name so but you know, still, I always like to get people's names right because even yes. even when I meet someone from a foreign country, like there will be a lot of people say maybe from like the likes of Africa here in Ireland, like and like they've got funny names and people just end up calling them like a, a nickname. And I'm always like, no, tell me your real name because that's not your name. Like, and I'll I'll do my best to write it down and memorize it and say it properly. That's just personally me. Like so. Anyway, that's a complete we completely regress there. So the topic of this podcast is obviously your book Triphasic Training, which, as I said offline, and I'll say it now to people listening, was an absolutely brilliant book. Yeah, so really need to congratulate you and, and Ben Pearson on, a, on an absolutely masterful book. Um, as I was saying to you as well offline, it was the first training book since uh, Joel James's Ultimate MMA that I just devoured. In fact, I, I I got it as the ebook and put it on my Kindle, and then my Kindle just stopped working. I was like, oh. I was like, fuck this. And then I just, I said, I'm, that's it. I'm just getting the real book. So I just went on to Ultimate Atlee Concepts. I was like, you so sent me the book because I need to finish this book. I was like 100 pages in. But before we get into Triphasic, Cal, I just want to ask uh, two other questions that I ask everyone that comes on to the show. And then we'll, we'll delve into to, to the Triphasic training book and really get into the nuts and bolts. So the second question I'm going to ask is, with regards to influences, who have been your biggest influences on you, both as a coach and then as a person? Um... You know, uh, as a coach, 
it's probably been the Bondarchuks and the Verkashanskys of the world. Um, you know, I've, I've met uh, Bondarchuk. Um, you know, obviously the dialect's tough with him yeah. mainly knowing Russian. Um, I've, I've studied in, in many of those. I've met Mel Sif. I spent a few days in his home. So, you know, these people, I, I think they just inspired me and showed me there's other ways to critically, you know, critically think and, and with logical reasoning. That's been the biggest thing. I always question what I do because I just keep trying to make it better and better. Yeah. You know, and that, that's a hard thing. Even though you've had success, um, I, uh, Triphasic will have more advancements. Um, there'll be a second book out hopefully in the next few months where the most advanced methods of Triphasic that I have um, will, will be exposed. Um, these are things I've worked on for four now, maybe five years going on. Yeah. But, you know, I, I didn't want to confuse or, or make too much um, in triphasic, the original part. But, but as you know, I, I referenced everybody on every concept. Yeah. I didn't, uh, you know, uh, like one of the time parameters, like one of the things with time training, I mean, I, I saw that with a old Verkashansky article where, well, not necessarily time, but let's say the drop-off method. Yeah. I mean, he wrote about that in 1972. Mm. So um, I found an old Russian translation uh, article. And then, you know, my, my head coach here at the University of Minnesota, Phil Lundin, you know, I saw him implement it in 99 where he was just running flying 90s or flying 30s, let's say. And I'm like, well, how many are we doing? How many of the guys doing? He's like, well, until they drop off. And you're like, wow, that, that makes a lot of sense. You know, yeah, that yeah. He, he said sometimes, you know, during, during uh, exam weeks or maybe whatever, um, they're under high stress. They can't run as many. And he's like, that's, that's kind of regulating itself. So, it, you know, I've been exposed to coaches. Uh, another coach, like I just mentioned, Phil Undine, our track coach, he's a Ph.D. in biomechanics. Um, he's, he was very... I mean, he was an amazing person to sit and, and listen to talk, and mm. he was kind of my uh, my role model in regards to coaching. If I could be uh, be a great coach, and and then you know, just influentially, I, honestly, it's it's been coaches over the years that have you know worked with me. My willingness to work hard in sports um, kind of inspired me to become a better coach, honestly. And I, I realize now that I, I make a you know I have made an effect on kids' lives, and actually, some of my research now is, is going on to to refine myself a little bit better in that regards, um, mm. to, to make sure I, I teach lessons. I, I, you know, the kids respect me for a coach, but I also want them to respect me in regards to making them a better person, or at least aware that they have, they can make better choices of people, um, to not take for granted that, Hey, they have all the athletic, you know, ability in the world, but yet the kid down the street who, who doesn't have it or is born with you know, a birth defect will never have that opportunity that they have, so they need to embrace that opportunity with sports. Yeah, yeah. And then influences regards to you as a, as a person? Um, I, I would say, I, I think the, the coaches, my parents, obviously, um, I've been very fortunate. Uh, you know, I, I sit back and I look at a lot of leaders, whether it's athletic directors, whether it's my head coaches I work with, they, they help me. Um, I've had a lot of good people. Um, you know, I think my family is the biggest thing because I, I'm not so sure I would have uh, turned out as well as I did, I guess. Um, mm. I measure myself there. But, but ultimately, it's, it's the, the people that you surround yourself with, I think, that will make you better. Yeah, kind of like Tim Ferriss, like, you know, your, your reflect, reflection of the five people you spend most time with. So. There's no question. Yeah, yeah. So, 
before again last question before we move into triphasic is what would you say and you probably might touch into this the further we get into again discussing the nuts and bolts of your sort of philosophy of training but what would you say are the biggest problems you see within the strength and conditioning profession um you know well as you know in chapter one of my book the, the, I, I think there's been a you know paradigm shift um to uh, unique exercises maybe pulled from the the rehabilitation world and for training so that uh, I truly don't believe that there's enough stress applied mm. at times now you know most of the year you're with let's say my hockey team right now we're my ice hockey team we're in we're in season so I mean I have to be very strategic about the stress I apply however I know if you see my program and people see what goes on that there's a lot of stress that I apply to get adaptations in the tissue hormonally, um, some of my new methods that we'll get into, but uh, I mean, there's a lot of testosterone release, growth hormone, and from a, a super maximal eccentric lift, if you track the hormone levels, it's, it, it's, a, it's a massive dose of hormones that are uh, placed into the body or the body releases, where that won't come from, let's say, a Turkish get-up or uh, an exercise that's not necessarily stressful enough. Yeah. Now, not that they don't have their place, because I actually uh, use some exercises like that when I build a, they build a circuit to, to develop repeated spreadability, as I call it, and because I look at repeated sprintability as just the time and time again to be able to produce max effort sprinting. Well, I look at it as max effort repeatability, okay? Mm -hmm. The ability to repeat max effort. So then when you're trying to get strong, if you can, re if you can do eight sets instead of six, then your ability is, is increased. And that's basically done by uh, increasing to get stronger. And that's done by increasing your um, aerobic capacity. So you can use a lot of those exercises in a, in a circuit setup, but... I truly believe that people don't know the place where all these exercises and different methods should be implemented because if, you, if you're implementing, you know, I've seen some great coaches over the years, I get to travel a lot, and if you're not, if they find a method that works, but if they do it two months too early, you're like, well, well I think it might be better over here. Now, I don't always know their schedule, but if I do, I'm like, I think there's a sequencing to everything and how the body adapts. And if people can understand that, then they know when and what's going to work optimally. Mm. I mean, there's enough literature out there that you don't have to do a double-blind study on a, on a new method. I mean, I think science backs up what coaches know works, you know, over the course of the years. I, I think science may be moving ahead in some fronts, and like biochemistry, but, I mean, I knew triphasic worked. I know there's a lot of research coming out about isometrics and, and eccentrics and you know, the Soviets even wrote in the 60s that isometrics are a great method, we just don't know how to implement them. Well, I think that's a little bit about what triphasic has done is now implement, showed you how to implement and use isometrics, uh, you know, in athletics in a very, very um, fast and efficient method uh, or level. Yeah, yeah. So, with regards to triphasic then, if, if someone just said, right, Cal, give me a, a soundbite, like, summarize it, what is it? What is triphasic training? I will... Yeah, basically it's a dynamic human movement. It's like all all movements are dynamic in regards to with with mainly sports. Um, so you have three phases to the muscle contraction: an eccentric loading. There's a brief change of direction with the isometric, and then the concentric is applying the force in everything that's loaded up in the tissues that you now gathered mm. with that force, and and then do it in a coordinated fashion. 
Now, all you're doing is breaking down those three movements to become very specific and getting somebody extremely strong eccentrically, then stronger isometrically, and then concentrically if needed still. And then you basically train the sports, the most sport-specific stuff after triphasic. So triphasic, people think, it's great for sports, but if you look at it, it's not sport-specific yet. Yeah. Because sport-specific, but, but it sets you up to become sport-specific. Mm -hmm. and, and I want to reiterate this, training's a process. Yeah. So triphasic is just part of that process, you know. And I've been very fortunate to, to have thousands of emails come and coaches send me results. And, and, and you're just sitting here, you're going... You know, are they doing Caldita's methods? No, because every program I've had e emailed to me is different. Because that's why I think uh, a lot of people um, embrace it. Because you know, you don't have to have a certain type of gym or a certain method. You can just throw triphasic in, just one lift a day, or you can do it throughout your entire week with everything that you do. So um, it's just some theories, and coaches have to coach it up. I mean, I, I, take, I don't take any credit in regards to somebody's program because they're doing it themselves. Um, I know how much more goes in than just laying out some blocks of eccentric and isometric and concentric training. So, um, and, and look, this isn't just me. Um, I've had 15 assistants that helped me with this. I've had thousands of athletes help me with this, getting their, their input, their thoughts, and then just been very fortunate to be the one that a lot of people credit for this, this training system. Early on in, in your book, you, uh, you, know, you went over, obviously, you know, the stress physiology, our need to stress the body. Uh, one thing that really kind of comes through in your writing is that you feel a lot of coaches have veered away or are nearly fearful of, quote-unquote, overtraining or overreaching their athletes. And you feel overreaching is a very critical component. In fact, your five factors, which I'm going to ask you about, you know, these five factors of high volume, high intensity, frequency, overreaching being one, and then high expectations – why do you think coaches have kind of, you know, they're afraid to overreach their athletes? I love that kind of quote on page 10 where you're like, you know, you have to throw your athletes over the cliff just enough so that they come back as a different athlete. You're like, beware, because they'll be, a, you know, they'll be a better athlete than before. Why do you think this sort of uh, reluctancy has come about in some coaches to overtrain or overreach, I should say, their athletes? Well, I mean, if you truly try phasic with those types of concepts and method is an, is an off-season type of, of yeah. training, yeah. you know. And um, so when I implement my highest levels of triphasic, like I won't run a whole lot with, with, with athletes because I spent four weeks through the eccentric isometric phases where I'm not running because I, you know, they're, they're under extreme amounts of stress. Mm. Um, I think you know, people are a little scared. They don't understand that, look, to get adaptations to the tissue, you have to do things that are, that are very hard. Um, and if they try to implement, and a lot of people will only get their athletes in season, so you can't really do this too much unless your athletes have done it off season. Yeah. Now I, I do it in season, but my athletes have been through triphasic in the summer, so I'll readdress certain qualities, and it's two or three sets at the most. And I just think you know people are, get worried about overtraining, but they don't understand where overtraining can be of great use because if you can raise the baseline of the athlete to higher levels in all systems in the body with compensating and overtraining, then the loads you can place in the in-season are, are even greater from practice and they were lifting. Not that you're trying to stress them too much in-season, you want to keep them fresh. I'm yeah. a firm believer in, in keeping athletes fresh, but you know, some people look at my Instagram and say that my, my team can't do that. 
and I'm, and I'm and, and even even assistants of mine that have, have left a place went to a new place at the end of a summer and then showed the people what we're doing in Minnesota with triphasic in season they're like we can't do that because it's too much volume well of course but the only reason we can do that is because in the summer we've dressed in, and we've overtrained them to some extent, okay? And, and, and this really works with the academic schedule here in the United States because there's times where the athletes leave and go away for two weeks or, or, or a longer period of time. So I felt it's okay to overtrain them and then they can recover because they, they just come back at a higher level once they've compensated and we can readdress qualities. Now, you know, I, and, and why I know there's been a lot of, you know, I, I'm a firm believer in, in making sure the athletes are ready and people say, hey, they have to be ready. Well, I don't disagree with you, but I think in the offseason, um, let's say, for example, I know a lot of times the hormones in triphasic towards the end of the week will start to drop off. Mm. You know, maybe your testosterone levels because you're under so much stress. And then the second week, they drop off maybe by Thursday, maybe even a little into Wednesday. However, there's are good reasons to train when your hormone levels are low, there's are there are different adaptions to my understanding. When your hormone levels are low and you're trying to train, than when your hormone levels are high in your training. So I want all the possible adaptations to take place during the course of training. And uh, I think coaches uh, also there's compensation patterns that exist in the athlete. And if you don't, you know, if they're not structurally sound, let's say for example an anterior rotated hip, then I don't I don't want to squat that athlete. So I get them fixed. So then they don't have back pain. So I screen all my athletes um, basically with an eye test and some, some other screening methods to make sure that they're structurally sound to train hard. Because so many athletes have different structural imbalances now. And it's like, well, we have to get those fixed before we can train super hard or you're going to break. Something's going to happen. Mm-hmm. In terms then of um, the, the section in your book, and I, you know, when I read this, I, you know, if you say this to most coaches, what I'm about to say, they'll be like, oh, you can't apply that to collegiate or high school athletes. It's ridiculous. So you start talking about, like, you know, the Bulgarians, you know, the, the Bulgarian, Bulgarian model was this, you know, high volume, intensity, frequency. And even in your book, you're like, listen, I'm not saying that people should train like that. I'm saying you can take that concept and water it down and use a very good variation of that with your athletes. But again, you'd see a lot of coaches and they'd be very like, oh, I don't know, like Bulgarians, you know, the drugs, the Eastern Bloc. And again, like it's uh, it just when I was reading, it, that's what a depression I was getting the other coaches to say. But I'm, I'm, I like to think that I'm pretty open, critical minded. I, you know, I'm very open to ideas. And what you said made so much sense again when you showed the Bulgarian results in comparison to the Russians. Then when the Russians implemented the model, and just, just maybe go on about how you sort of taken this idea from the Bulgarians and those five factors that and kind of put that in with your athletes. Um, you know, I, I guess the the biggest thing was it's it does a number of things with the mental toughness too yeah. to make sure that you know the athletes know that they can push themselves to another level and I think if you really look at that Bulgarian the volume for five five lifts a day uh, if you add up the volume uh, there's some other athletes that may do more in two workouts than, mm. than that so um, really if you look at what they did it's about really high I think it's you know I know you became fatigued but the quality was pretty high because it was mainly doubles and singles throughout the day. Yeah. Um, and the adaptations, I, I know they were very aggressive. Um, I know they talk a, a lot about some of the adaptations that took place when they became that fatigue. But, you know, um, ultimately, it's it's done strategically in the off season and not necessarily 
during the in-season ever oh, because, yeah. but, but again, I'm just trying to raise the, the entire function of the organism higher levels in the off-season because, so, so I'll use this example. I have one run that I do for some, let's say it's just a, a four-minute run, a three- to four-minute run in my arena up and down steps, and you have to do one lap, and it takes, you know, three to four minutes usually. But I have athletes that, that we don't train aerobically, but that are just into my my into my into plan. So when they come in, they spend the first summer with me, they may run that test in four and a half minutes. Mm. Well, we do. let's say we do the same plan or pretty close throughout the three, four years. They end up running that same run in two minutes and 50 seconds in the end. And it's just because the work capacity and, and their strength levels have increased so much. Oh, that, that even though they did one plant, my, the first year they did it for 12 weeks, and they got four minutes, 30 seconds, but they took a minute and a half off the run by the time they were four years later with their seniors, and I didn't focus on that run, or I didn't focus on that test, I'm sitting here going, our work capacity and the, the, the organism's ability to adapt is such at a high level now yeah. that they can handle many, many loads. and. It even shows, you know, I use a number of things to analyze, like in Omega Wave, I have a number of pro athletes that I do, and if they've been in my system for four or five years and they go to the pros, they actually seem to handle the stress of the season better than the athletes that, I have, that I'm monitoring that haven't been in my program, yeah, yeah. You, you know. So it's really, I'm just trying to increase the adaptability, the, the function of the organism to the highest levels. Um, so... And, you know, the Bulgarians, there was a, two types of Olympic lifting um, houses. I think uh, camps, the way you look at it is they did Olympic lifts, and then and that's what they stayed with. And then, like, the Chinese went more Olympic lifts with assisted lifts. And I learned from the uh, Chinese weightlifting coach, the guy that started it all, he traveled all over, where he felt that, well, they had a world champion, I think, that broke their hand and couldn't do Olympic lifts till two or three weeks out of the world championships. All they all he did was assisted lifts. And he started Olympic lifting two to three weeks out and his assisted lifts got extremely strong and he set a new world record. And you're going, well if a guy can do that by just doing assisted lifts, then the value of the assisted lifts seemed to be very, very effective. Mm. And so, because you're basically taking out weak links that he may have had before. So that's why I'm a firm believer in doing a lot of uh, a variety with assisted lifts and not just doing like Olympic style lifts or, or because uh, you know, if you're a bad squatter because you got a weak back, you're never going to get better unless you make your back stronger. Mm. And what's the most effective way to make your back stronger? Maybe RDL, straight leg deadlift, things like that. But, um, you know, you can't throw out any tool that you're going to use. I do like isolation exercises, especially when it comes to finding weak links and getting rid of them. Um, so I, I don't know um, if I completely answered your question, but <laughs> no, strategically, you know, to use the right stress at the right time is what you have to understand and think about. Yeah, I like uh, like to summarize. So from, from what I'm getting for you is that by by just increasing the organisms you know threshold it's or it's by just increasing the whole uh, biological output of the organism that things that were a previous stress to the organism later on are no longer as stressful because it's it's adaptive reserves have just increased so much because from the training process and you're saying that you know that that, that you can actually take a, a sort of modified bulgarian method and then 
apply that to athletes and it's the fact that coaches are nearly afraid to again overreach their athletes that their athletes aren't getting those results they're going well my athletes can't handle this volume it's like yeah, that's because you're training them like pussies <laughs> you know yeah, exactly and let me give you a quick example with my professional athletes i have some that only do eccentric two weeks a year isometric two weeks a year and then guess what they are strong enough that they do not have to train strength anymore so really literally they're only training four weeks a year and then we switch off to some very high speed high velocity stuff uh types of training for the rest of the summer like six to eight weeks at the end and then they're strong enough because because you wouldn't believe when they come back in two weeks of heavy lifting they're where they were the year before if not higher because they they've reached levels of of, of absolute strength mm-hmm. now you you know you don't need to necessarily lift heavy year round because we know that it can make you even slower because you're straining so much and and so four weeks a year my more advanced athletes let's say we're talking 24 to 30 year old athletes only will lift heavy four weeks a year with me because then they're strong enough and they they keep those strength gains throughout the year you know so uh, I mean uh, I think we we do emphasize strength too much um, except with my young kids like we need to get strong and it's very hard um, to keep pushing them at times to get strong just continuing on then, delve, uh, delving more into the triphasic uh, method. So you spoke about the daily undulating uh, model, you know, your, the way you weekly schedule sort of stress and how you adapted mm-hmm. that from the classical model to the modified model and then also how you uh, incorporate the daily undulating model within a block model. So can you just maybe touch on that for, for the listeners? So basically, the reason I undulated that, uh, the, I used the undulated model, and then I tried it, but it wasn't successful for me because the original undulated model, there was high volume on Mondays, medium volume on Wednesdays, and then the least volume on Friday with high intensity. And I realized that with my drug-free athletes, it, it just wasn't going to work. So because that, that high volume day on Monday was just killing them. Yeah, yeah. So all I did was I switched the high volume on Friday when then they were going to be tired, and I slid everything back. Because, and then I even tried heavy weights on Monday. And they weren't successful with the heavy weights. So then the only other place to put it would be Wednesday. Well, I found that the medium heavy weights with the medium volume seemed to set them up for a great Wednesday workout for heavy weights. And then they're a little fatigued. Well, guess what? I have the lighter volume day at the end of the week, and we could just grind out some sets. And to me, it set them up to be successful literally on every day. And then at the end of the week with the high volume, I got high quality, or I got... um, more work in when they were fatigued and then they seemed to get recovered by the end of the week through the weekend and we'd start with a medium heavy on on monday and then go back and hit the heavy on wednesday if that was the model that we chose which which ended up being the the ideal model i think for college Mm. um athletes because you know and sometimes college athletes will go out on a thursday night so you actually may be dealing with some hungover athletes on friday which then the high volume kind of maybe tortured them a little bit or or put it in the back of their mind that they couldn't go go too hard on a Thursday night yeah, so. yeah, yeah. and then just and then in terms of you know you and I, I would be a proponent too of, of sort of the block model you know Verkshansky and Ishran and you compared obviously the block model to kind of uh, a linear concurrent model and you know any coach that knows this stuff knows you know that the the the, the the sort of downfall or, or the negatives of a concurrent model is there's too many qualities being stimulated at once and you know the more advanced the athlete they're not getting enough of a they're not getting enough concentrated load on a particular quality to get better so 
can you maybe just explain why you think block the block model is better obviously probably for that reason too but he, like yeah. how like why why the block model for the triphasic method and, and um why do you think it's so much better than than say linear mixed sure well what so the more advanced stuff that I'm doing now is I, I train for time, obviously, and everything that I do is for a particular time or in a set energy system. Mm -hmm. And the way the best analogy I've, I've come up with is this: if you're training for a um, triathlon and a powerlifting meet at the same time, you you can't really do that because your body's getting pulled in so many directions. Yeah. So then, it, with your body being pulled in all these directions, I said, well, what's the other end of that spectrum? Well, it's becoming so specific that you're training for a very specific stress and the body can then one adapt better but it also can handle much much more loads if you're not trying to pull it in many directions yeah. so I, I, I like to say this that that when the body reaches in a direction that it's trying to adapt to you can get more and more stress because it doesn't have to spend as much energy. It only has to focus on one one particular thing. Mm -hmm. Now, what we don't understand is that, uh, for example, I was on a phone call with a, a number of, of strength coaches who kind of got together and were chatting. Um, let's say one Wednesday I had a professional athlete, um, and he did, with some auto-regulation, he did 72 bouts of five-second max effort attempts on agility drills and weightlifting exercises yeah. and short sprint conditioning at the end. And they turned to me and then they said, well, what'd you do for, con like, what were, your condition was only five seconds, well, shouldn't you do more? And I'm like, if you take his heart rate and, and assess the amount of aerobic component in 72 max effort bouts, you're going, 50% I, I, of that workout was essentially aerobic. aerobic yeah. You know, so... I do do a high volume, but ultimately his whole body that day adapted to five seconds of max effort. His brain, his heart, various systems within the body. Because I look at the organism as a bunch of a cybergenetic system, which is organisms, um, different, different kind of uh, systems within a system. Mm. And all these systems are then adapting to one thing. And, and people say, well, that must be for the most advanced athletes. Well, you're going... What I found is kids with, with low work capacity can actually get greater results because the, the, now their organism only has so much energy to adapt, and that's the difference between young and old athletes in my program. But if it's very specific stress, they can actually even still handle more volume because they're peaking to the very specific stress and they don't have to, to adapt to all these other stressors again. So it does, to me, it does work because I've tried it both ways with advanced and non-advanced athletes. To be very specific about the, the adaptation to, to what stress you're applying is is will cause greater adaptations in the organism. And then you change that stressor and move in another direction. Yeah. And you don't lose those qualities. As I said, strength you don't lose very very fast. I, I mean, I think people say, well, they can't back squat or clean as much as they did, whatever exercise you choose. Well, they just if, you, if you've gotten away from it, they just lost the skill of back squatting. And cleaning, they did not lose the strength. If you put them on, let's say, a, 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 a leg sled and measure it, they didn't lose that much strength. Even over six months, if they're still practicing and doing stuff, they won't lose that much. They'll, they'll, they may lose a, the snatch, a lot on their snatch, but that's a highly technical lift that you have to do daily to get really proficient at. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually really 
it's it's uh it's funny you said that that the block model can go both ways beginner and uh advanced because i would say for the most part i've i utilize a sort of modified block model in that so i haven't done a true block model in terms of using residuals like not not as stringent as isherin what, what i've always done is emphasize a quality and maintain other qualities or if I'm presenting, I'll always say I emphasize a quality and I maintain or introduce qualities. And usually a hand goes up and says, I understand what you mean by uh, emphasize and maintain, but what do you mean by introduce? And I say, because if you flip it the other way and say I have a beginner and the beginner needs to focus on work capacity, I'm going to emphasize work capacity. But that doesn't mean that I won't you know, give him a little bit of an introduction to strength or sure. explosive strength or a little bit of linear multidirectional or elastic rack strength or linear multidirectional speed work. But I'm still going to emphasize something. Whereas you'll still see a lot of coaches, and it's like, you know, if you saw a pie of work capacity, max strength, explosive strength, elastic strength, speed, it's just like an equal slice between each part of the pie. Now, just for the listeners and Cal, I'm going to have to just pause for one second because someone's at my door. So just give me a sec. Sure. We'll be back in one sec. Um, okay. Yeah, so we're so we're back. Some guy's at my door trying to. He, it was actually a new internet box is coming, and he's like, "I have the new internet box. I need the old ones." Like, I can't give you that because I'm interviewing a, wor- a world class coach. Uh, no, but just as we were saying just there, so I use this modified block model and I, I go both ways with a boat advanced yep. or beginner. So very, it's very, uh, you know, it's great to hear you say so, 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 something well, similar there. Yeah, and, and like you said, I, I probably should reiterate that with the beginner, you, you, you can use different quality. You know what I mean? Because cause they, they, they'll adapt almost to anything. So yeah. you, can, you can add stuff in there. Um, the most elite athlete, let's say a world-class high jumper, you better be very specific about what you're doing with him, yeah. as you know. You know, and this is what this is again the the, the modeling and the the process of, of, of coaching. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just I, I loved as well. See what what I really liked about your book, uh, and I've actually was on, I we've a, an Irish sport coaches institute here that I that I'm a co-founder of CEO, and we've a forum with members, and I was writing out you know writing responses to like form treads and energy system development and just basic strength stuff and I was telling people you know, people saying they were asking questions about, about Verkashansky and Isher and I was saying listen the best thing you can do is buy Cal Dietz book because it really was I think you just did a great job of when I read that I was like okay I, I now I know that I did understand their work correctly because I'm reading it sometimes and I'm kind of going right. am I understanding this correctly and you know, when when you were like, uh, you, you know, you really brought Verkashansky and Ishran together for me. You know what I mean? I was like, oh, did, I was like, I was like, okay, Ishran says training residuals, Verkashansky says long lasting delayed effects. It's the same thing. I understand. Super training's making sense. Right. So it was really good. But uh, with regards to that block model, um, just for the listeners too, you know, you were saying the four essential principles were high training loads, focusing on minimal qualities, which you just discussed about. One quality I want you to want you to touch on to is the consecutive development of training quality. So I'm always trying to say this to people like, so make sure that your sequencing of blocks makes sense. Like there's you wouldn't go, oh let's focus on speed work, but and then go into maximum strength. That would make no right. sense, obviously. So you know, just trying to because the reason why I'm asking maybe some what seem maybe redundant questions to me or yourself or maybe some people listening is there is beginner people that listen to this and probably some of this is over their head. So can you just touch into why the consecutive development and the sequential sort of sequence of um, qualities is important. Um, did you hit record on this? Yes, I did, yes. Okay, yeah. okay, right. Um, <laughs> well, uh, you know, it, it, to me it all started, well, so if you look at my whole system, and, and I'll go back, and I haven't shared my work capacity system um, too much. I'll actually send that to you if you want to post it or share exactly what I do with right. my repeated sprintability uh, stuff. So I'll do a GPP model, which is just a fitness-based, 
to prepare them for triphasic. Mm. If you don't have good work capacity and you don't take three, two to four, or really three to four weeks to build a, a, a capacity to do more work, then triphasic becomes less effective. So with with that in mind, and, and I usually do two blocks of or two weeks of aerobic, two weeks of, of I would say it's lactate, but it's a localized lactate versus a global. And it takes about two weeks for the enzymes at the cellular level to really adapt to the fullest yeah. to get you the full benefits. Three actually is optimal, but a lot of coaches don't have three weeks of, of each block. And then so I build that first base so that you can do more work in triphasic, which will get you greater results. And then the sequencing of the, the next one is the eccentric because if there's a number of things that happen. If you build the base, you can handle more load but you, because you can adapt to the more eccentric training then mm. and, and build the quality of the eccentric because if you can stop and change directions, that's the eccentric part of this, which then sets you up to the isometric, which is really the heaviest load of triphasic because... So the eccentric part is you're going down slow, you're not getting to your weakest point very fast, but you are pulling the actinomyosin head apart yeah. during the eccentric phase, which then happens to break the heads of the actinomyosin, and then they come back and rebuild themselves thicker, so now you have a greater tensile strength within the muscle, mm. so that the muscle is now remodeled, and then with that new remodeling, you go into the isometric and you make that new tissue stronger in that weakened position because it's at the bottom usually all the time yeah. the isometrics are held in the bottom position in the weakest position you get extremely strong so then you can transfer all that strength into the concentric phase and the more more sports specific stuff such as plyometrics and running because again triphasic's not sport specific but it does set you up to be extremely sport specific more efficiently later and the speed, so, so again, I look at, like, let's say all the core exercises that people will do. Well, to me, if an athlete is running down the track and, look, and you're running and you're in front of them and their core is moving all over because um, they're undulating because they're, they're lateral slaying and their core is weak, it's, it's because when the leg slams back, let's say a 60-pound shank um, or your limb slams back at, eight, 10 meters per second, mm. there might be three or 400 pounds of force in a split second that your core has to stabilize. So really not too many of the exercises, if you look at them in the weight room, can simulate what's gonna happen when you run. Yeah, yeah. So I, I see my athletes, if, 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 they're, if they're not moving and their core's not shaking all over when they run towards me, their core's strong enough to handle the load of running, which I think running is the most sport specific uh, and, and the most advanced training exercise you could you people ask me you know they always ask that question what one exercise what would it be it would be running because I could do top end speed I could do acceleration yeah, yeah. I could do you know that to me that's the most sport specific so I'm setting everybody up so triphasic for a world-class sprinter you only do it at the beginning of the summer in the off season and then you would get away from it because these guys probably don't need too many more of those qualities once they reflect on them at the beginning it's it's funny you said it because i interviewed james james smith the tinker have you ever spoke to james yeah, uh, oh yeah. And, and he just made he made the exact same point you did there in terms of that force going through the body when you sprint and then he was like you know if you were to talk any strength coach we always say you know you got to get strong first guy strong first 
but like he kind of brought that question it's like well he goes and, he, and in, in his own mind he's still like yeah like it still makes sense but then like the question is how do these track athletes some who don't even you know those track athletes who don't even lift weights like how are they able to handle that force and output that and never have that kind of quote unquote strength base that we always say needs to kind of precede this speed work it kind of puts you know put, like you know I think sometimes it's like question anything you, you know it's a we nearly become dogmatic like you know you have to get strong first you know strength supports explosive strength and elastic graph strength and then you know speed and multi-directional speed and whatnot but uh or linear multi-directional speed but then like when james poses the question like that he's like well listen these track athletes nothing you're doing in the weight room is com- coming near to those forces so it's like you know what is supporting that output like do you really need it, it does the strength buffer it's just it's a question that i haven't you know I, i've obviously it's been in my mind but I've never sat down to really think about it it's, it's an interesting one alright like what would your thought be on that so let's let's look at a marathon runner versus a sprinter obviously we know who's more muscular right yeah. and uh, you can still get huge amounts of adaptation from running and running hard because so they can produce a lot of force and they're going to get a hormonal response from short sprint training yeah. the marathon runner doesn't get because there's not a lot of tension in the body to cause a huge hormonal adaptation that the sprinters get. Yeah. Now there may be some genetics there too because most likely the, the sprinter does have higher hormonal levels and that's why they've, they've gotten that, you know, they've gone that route in, in the performance world. But so to me, again, this is why we train is to cause a hormonal response to get adaptations. This is why people take performance PEDs, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, to get an adaptation. So I, I truly believe that we're missing the boat by not applying stress, but but understand acceleration on the leg, there might be three, four, five hundred pounds of force on the leg as they're accelerating. Mm. So there's going to be adaptations too. And, and James is right, when you get to a certain level, like let, let me back up, triphasic for a world-class sprinter at the beginning of the year, you may not see the effects until 20 weeks down the road. Yeah. But then you've, you've raised his ceiling of adaptation. So then 20 weeks when you've done six to eight weeks of very specific training, everything may come together. But you don't know what it will be because we can't measure everything or why it came together. Yeah, I, I, think, I, mean, I, I think too is that we become too ice, you know, we become too isolated in our mind. Like, you know, that strength is here and explosive strength is there and speed is here. When like James said to me one day, like I had James over in Ireland for a seminar and James, he was talking about sprinting and he just said to me, sprinting strength training. And I was like, and he goes, it's speed strength. He's like, it's all strength training. And he's like, you know, so he's like, you can get, and then, you know, it, it, it kind of like an aha moment in my head. I was like, that's what Dan Faf means by like, you can get strong, just throwing med balls and running. Like, so like, because we know this, we know like, we know that if you, if you took like a, a, a world-class sprinter and brought him into the weight room, like, and he's never lifted and he lifted, he was like, he'd be strong. Like, you know what I mean? Just once yes. the technique was good. It's kind of similar to the gymnastic people too. You know, they're kind yes. of on, they're on the other end. They're kind of like used to holding lots and lots of force not maybe not moving at high velocity sometimes but like say guys in the the ring or the doing the, the iron cross like you know they, they they're so good at putting out high tension or, or withstanding high tension that you bring them to the weight room their force output's amazing as well like but you know just kind of james is like it's it's not as it's not as compartmentalized as we want it to be it's all one system it's all one organism and again at the end of the day it just goes back to stress and adaptation stress adaptation well the measurement of strength, though, is, is becomes the issue, too, because so Olympic weightlifting coaches will say, wow, they're not that strong because they can't back squat, you know, 200 kilos. But you're like, first of all, 
their legs are so long because that's who that's why they run faster yeah, yeah okay yeah. and then you get in the deep position they may not be as strong in the deep but if you check the three-quarter squat or the three-quarter single leg squat mm. they'll be extremely strong so you know many people we pull from a power lifter who who might be a, a very deep squatter uh, according to his federation and he'll say, "Well, I'm much stronger you than to, you." Yeah, you have to. You have to put that bit in. Yeah, you do. I'm sorry, <laughs> uh, but 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 you're like, I, it just becomes like, well, you're sitting here going, you're not measuring this athlete where he could be the strongest, or let's measure uh, Usain Bolt with a, a elite level power lifter who's got the with a force plate, who's got the best joint stiffness qualities, yeah. and when they land in a very good quality position and then jump, I know what that force plate will look like. It'll show me that Usain Bolt has extremely high quality. Yeah. Yeah. extremely high quality um, force at that at that point in phase versus the Olympic weightlifter or, or, or other types of athlete powerlifters. Well, just just going on here one thing that I like I always say at, at, to like I do some courses and seminars and all that and what I always say to the coaches is that listen guys injury reduction aside because obviously injury reduction is a major part of what we do and you know just getting strong is actually good injury prevention stuff you'd like to tell people as well. But injury reduction aside, and this was a part in your book that I love too. I guess your book is kind of reaffirming kind of my own kind of principles in my own mind. But injury reduction aside, our goal is to help our athletes or develop our athletes' ability to produce the most amount of force in the least amount of time. And I also say as well that another part of our role is to diminish the central nervous system's inhibition on our force output capabilities. And I love one of your things in the book where you're like, about the Galga tendon organs, you're like they're an overprotective mother. I thought that was brilliant the way you know you, you kind of said that. So like, can you can you speak on that? Can you speak on two things? One, why why injury reduction aside, our main role is to help athletes produce the most amount of force in the least amount of time, and how we go about that is by diminishing the nervous system's um, inhibition on our force output capabilities. And I always use that sort of analogy of you know you hear the person who flips the car off their child because in that moment you know enough adrenaline was released from the, the hpa axis to allow the mother to just like you know diminish those protective mechanisms for that split second or two so she could lift that car so could you maybe just touch into those two areas cal well the, the first thing uh, applying force whether so if you look back at the eccentric part the sooner you can absorb more force and, and be stronger in a position let's say you're going to cut yeah. and you can make a quicker cut if you can apply a lot of force quickly, then that cut's going to be more efficient. Um, and I truly believe if you're applying force quickly, then you've taught the body how to function correctly. And when the body's functioning correctly, the likelihood that you're going to get it hurt. And then also realize this, if you're functioning correctly and you can apply a lot of force, then you're more efficient too. So not, And then the metabolic cost of the game becomes less. Yeah. You can also perform at a higher level, but the metabolic cost, so then fatigue becomes less of a factor. That's a factor, yeah. And, and, and one of the big reasons for injury and soft tissue is often is, is fatigue. I, I think the, the, a lot of the research will show that as we can learn to track fatigue at a, at, a, at a higher level. But, you know, lack of sleep, you know, girls blow their ACL in soccer. Did they, did they have bad travel? Did they, you know, we're talking about elite, did, were they drinking that week? Um, you know, I, I could give you a number of examples where I did the same load over four weeks and then the coaches decided to kill the kids at the end of the four weeks 
And on the fourth week, they've started getting sore from the training load that they've done three weeks previously. Mm. And you're going, how is this possible? It's because the coaches went and destroyed them for a 12-day period. Yeah. Now they're getting sore from the same training load that they've already adapted to. You're going, so, so it's really, a, and then you throw in exams. You know, I, I know I, I did some really quick numbers, and, and it appears that our sports all lose more during midterms and exam weeks, yeah. getting close to exam, than, they've, uh, than they do in the entire season. You're like, uh, I mean, I can give you one example where five teams that probably should have won or had close, they, they just all lost during that time frame. And, and if you go back through our history, you can look at that. Um, and then, again, uh, it goes back to with, with the inhibitors. So that's where... I want to tie this back to the eccentric phase of, of triphasic where you're pulling the tissue apart. When that tissue has greater um, tension, then the inhibitors are actually delayed or, or reduced so that you the it's not shutting the safety mechanism down yeah. as much. But that's actually a good thing because then you have more tissue, less likely the soft tissue injuries will appear. Uh, and, and this has been reported to me through from very low-level athletes and coaches to very high level saying, hey, I had a reduction in soft tissue. Um, why is that? And they think it's neuromuscular, but really you're just remodeling the tissue to make it thicker to handle more force. Yeah, yeah. And, and really, uh, and there's a lot of things that go into that, obviously, biochemically, hormonally, but, but you're ultimately going, look, I'm just creating a better tissue, and then I prepare them for training to teach the muscle to, to fire fast, to run, to do agility drills. Like, you know, many people ask me, what do I do with young kids? I'm like, I run, you know, I wrote a speed and skill optimization article. I don't know if you've seen it. I'll, I'll let you post it or, or send it to you. Yeah, but it, um, it, it, it gives time parameters. And, and people ask me, well, how do I make my son fast? Well, I said, first, I, I married an Olympic champion. Okay, my wife's an Olympic gold medalist in 1998. I said, I picked his mother well, right? But, but ultimately, all I do is really high-quality running, and I don't, I don't go on the track. We go out in the yard, and I throw a football, and he chases it. And that's what he does. And then we'll stand there and wait for two minutes, and then he'll do it again. And that's all we're doing is really high-quality running and to teach him to run fast. And that's all it is. Mm. So it's not that complex, but running is, is I think, the one thing. Because if you think about it, is, is the, the legs fly back and forth, the upper body the muscles are turning on and off again and again. Yeah. And that's the key because these world-class athletes, they can shut their muscles down much faster. Yeah. Relaxation yes. is, is very crucial too. And we'll, and we'll talk about uh, your oscillatory method in a sec. In terms of just finishing off with that block model, so, you know, Ishran's accumulation, transmutation, realization, you utilize that and your accumulation is where you'll put in your triphasic components, isn't that correct? Sure. Yeah, and just be, before the eccentric phase, uh, Cal, would you would you do a, like so? Do athletes get better? And something you also said is you only really do eccentric with the kind of primary and maybe secondary list, and then the rest you won't do because it's too much eccentric work. Um, like, would you do a week just before that triphasic? I know you said you'll do a, a general preparatory uh, period, but is yeah. that just with more beginner athletes, or even with your more advanced athletes, will you do like a week so that when they go into eccentric, they're not a sore from it, or do you just go straight into it? Well, so I do a three to, or usually four week GPP, and then my advanced athletes can go right into it. Okay. The other athletes, like let's say high school. I mean, I've even had junior high coaches say, hey, I implemented triphasic, and it kind of made me nervous when I say junior high, like, 
13, 14, 15, yeah. where, where they were like, I'm like, oh, 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 and they're like, well, we went really light. We just, it was a really good teaching tool. So oh, okay, the kids yeah. would go down nice and slow. And then once they got a little stronger, we went isometrics with lighter weight and they learned to hold that position well. So it's actually a good teaching tool is what I found. You just don't want to go heavy. So yeah, you can progress them into, yeah. um, you know, but, but, but what we have to keep in mind, if you really want the true effects of triphasic, you have to tear the tissue apart on a very, let's say, isolated movement or back squat, whatever it may be, a leg sled. Um, I've even had coaches who only use machines to implement the triphasic and found that they got greater results. Mm. Well, you're just, you're just using the tissue and remodeling it with the eccentric phase. So, yes, there can be some buildup, but you have to understand it. The buildup is to a point where you're actually applying stress. So that you do do some tissue remodeling. So just we, we spoke there about the uh, the eccentric phase, and in that eccentric phase, it's that eccentric phase's main role is to sort of um, diminish the inhibition of those uh, safety mechanisms of the central nervous system on our forceps capability. So again, the GTOs, muscle spindles. The isometric phase you're saying in your book is more about you know the total motor unit recruitment and, and rate of coding. So maybe just touch into that isometric phase now. I think you were saying that that's when the highest amount of the highest amount of force is being produced. Is it? Well, yeah. So you have to realize in that weakened position, and you're using the same load as you did in the eccentric phase. Yeah, yeah. But you're in a you're in a deep position. Let's say for eight ten seconds, and that's where you're weakest. So that's where the amount the largest amount of volume on a body position yes. is yeah. then you'll get greater adaptations and recruitment of the muscles that's why you get so strong i modeled the tissue in the eccentric then you take that new tissue and you're essentially making it as strong as possible in that weakened position mm. because you know people always well should you do three position isometrics well if i can bench 300 and i'm holding 270 on my chest above my chest I'm getting really strong, but if I'm if I hold it up high, I may be able to do three three sixty three seventy. So two seventy up at high is not as effective in the three position hold as it is on the chest where you're really your weakest and spend all your time right there getting stronger in that weakened position. Yeah, yeah. Just then touching on then, uh, Kyle, regards to like your your three sort of blocks. So your first block is your high force, low velocity, eighty percent and above. Then your high force and high velocity, 55 to 80%. I actually have a really good question I want to ask about that one. And then finally, we're going to low force, high velocity, 25, 55%. How did exactly did you come up with these percentages? I know you mentioned Fred Hatfield on the peak power one at 78%. Um, that was in one part of the book. But where did you come up with the exact percentages for those three sort of phases? Well, I, I felt um, through, oh, well, you could say Louis Simmons, Fred Hatfield, doing experimenting during that time at uh, 55% to 80. Um, I knew above 80, I, I had to get, if I'm getting people strong, I had to go above 80 yeah. to get the most effectiveness. And then to, to get the next phase, well, what really came into effect was, you know, the peaking model for most weightlifting and most powerlifting is you peak at, 95, 92%. Well, it, no kidding. It After about, I think it was, I did it, I think I did it about a decade ago, maybe 12 years ago. I dropped them and I'm like, that doesn't make sense because in track and field, I, I understand peaking at 92 for weightlifting or 97 for weightlifting parallel, but for track and field, we're doing speed. So I dropped it below 80. I found those numbers and I seem to get a lot of great results. Well, 
I, I don't claim to be very smart. It took me eight to nine more years to go, well, what if I dropped it below 55? Would I even get better results? Mm. And we did. Yeah. So this is how it came to fruition yeah. was, you know, and ultimately that below 55 is we're using high speed, high velocity um, movements. And I use those terms because I've worked with some engineering students and and uh, that's what they termed it. They said this is high velocity, that's low velocity. And they, they didn't know anything about weightlifting, but they were very smart kids. And you're yeah. going, well, that's what, you know what I mean? I, I, I'm, not, I'm not the first one to say I know everything because I've, I've, I've gotten a lot from everybody else. But that 80 to 55, I found a better peaking method. Well, then a few years later, I asked them 55 to 25%, and I seemed to get better results because, again, it just makes sense. It's more specific because of the speed of the lift. Speed of the lift, yeah. Yeah, and and again now, understand if I take a three hundred pound bencher and they're using twenty five percent of their max, which would be seventy five pounds. If they pull the bar down, stop it above their chest, extremely fast and hard, and throw it up, the forces at that instantaneous spot where they stop might be three hundred plus pounds. Yeah, because I think the, you you said in your book that uh, some of your athletes when they went back to a strength block, they were actually stronger after doing that. Well, yeah. So I I had basically five athletes, six athletes that were identified as, as they didn't need to get stronger. So we went 12 weeks of high-speed stuff, and essentially they got stronger from that because we were just focusing on high speed. And when I go to test their bench, and we were okay with their bench getting weaker, I talked to the coaches, like, you know, they were tended to be walk-ons and guys that had been in the program a while, and they actually got stronger, but yet they could move lighter weight even faster. So that's what I... I was like, okay, this is a real deal method. And that was about six years ago. So then the next year I implemented the, the high speed with all my teams and, and things tra- seemed to transpire a lot, a lot was, more effective. Was that a tough sell to like the players? You know why players are used to going in and yes. we're like, coach, can I go sell. heavy? And Yeah, I'd say so, yeah. Well, you know, and but you know what? Uh, some of them had, had nothing to lose because they knew their performance needed to get better. And I'm like, look, you're so strong. You're one of the stronger on the teams. I don't think... You know, and they, I'll be honest with you, they were slow twitch fibers, more or less. I mean, they didn't move things very fast. They weren't the fastest sprinters, and I'm like, or the fastest skaters, per se. And I was like, we got to do this to try to see if there's something else. And lo and behold, things got better. Their running got better, their skating got faster, and they did get stronger. But, again, they were – but we were teaching them. I, I don't know if it was a transition, let's say, fibers, but more or less of a – a transition of the nervous system to teach that nervous system to fire extremely fast and then learn to relax it too yeah, it's because the, you know as Medea pointed out in SIF cited in super training that uh, hey the best athletes tend to relax the muscles the fastest that's and that's why on the bench we'll use the back to pull down the bar turn the muscles on instantly in the chest to stop it which will cause the, the uh, antagonistic muscles to relax at, at a very theoretically at a higher speed which so a lot of people say, well, does that happen because of the, the sarcoplasmic reticulum obviously sucks up the calcium, but you're like, is that related to work from the mitochondria? Are those tied together or if it's neurological? So I go to the exercise physiologists. They say, well, it's just because of the work in the mitochondria and the sarcoplasmic reticulum. Well, the neurological people say, well, it's actually the neurological system. So I, I don't know who to believe, but I know that repetition increases and proves that. I, I'm shifting more towards a neurological effect, especially, you know, uh, the chest firing to the muscle spindles and shutting off the, the lats uh, in those regards of the neurological system. 
it can be trained. It's obviously a train because I think if, if it doesn't, if the sarcoplasmic reticulum doesn't suck up the calcium like it's supposed to, you have diseases um, like muscular dystrophy. Mm. Um, that's why you'll see the shake. So I, I truly believe it's a neurological issue. Yeah, because I know in Joel's book, and I asked Joel this on the podcast, I interviewed Joel a long time ago, maybe three years ago, and in his book he was saying that the more mitochondria you have, the better people are at relaxation. I know, I know you're saying you're believing it's more neurological, but you were saying you posted that, that could be one of the mechanisms. And I asked him on the podcast, can he explain that? And he goes, I'm not going to get into it. It's very complicated. So he didn't well, actually get into it. Like, Well, well I, so people that have more mitochondria, though, they're, they're, and here's the conundrum. They've done more work, but that's been the neuromuscular system being more efficient too. Mm. So there's two there's two concepts. Now the other thing would be slow. One thing to look at: slow twitch muscle fibers have more mitochondria. We know this. Yeah. And then the muscle the muscle contracts and then relaxes at the same rate. Well, fast twitch fibers have less mitochondria, but they contract and relax much faster. Mm -hmm. So the question becomes: Is it the mitochondria? Because fast twitch fibers relax and contract at a higher rate and I'm not so sure that you can say it's the mitochondria part of it yeah 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 but but again we don't know we just don't know Um, just last few questions well we were another 10 minutes and we were saying 10 30 with regards to the uh, in the high force and high velocity uh, chapter very interesting was your take on AV Hill and the force velocity curve that was really interesting where you were like you know, I don't want to call A.V. Hill out, like, good guy, and you know, great concept, but he wasn't 100% correct. And so can you explain, like, uh, and I, I know the answer because I read in the book, but to the listeners, why the force velocity curve mightn't be 100% accurate? Um, it's, you know, ultimately, you're sitting here, you're going, with, and look, it, it might be with the, the type of athletes you have, too. Yeah. So things become skewed when you can apply a lot of force. Um, but let, let's say, for example, world-class sprinter, like the best of the best. Um, I watched some video on the 100 meters where uh, I think three out of the ten guys running in the Olympics um, actually didn't get the full extension mm. of their knee. And those were the three fastest guys. Yeah. And then the other guys would get the full extension. So the question becomes, as they're applying force at the beginning of the, the, the velocity curve, they may apply enough force that they realize that if they get to the very end, their body just naturally says, I'm wasting time where I could start the next cycle over again. Hmm. So you're talking to three most advanced athletes in running in the world, you're going, they didn't truly get the full extension. Well, they've already applied all the force they need to propel themselves to the next cycle. So, I, I mean, I, I think I, I was just kind of throwing some things out there, but I'm not sure that we can fully understand the whole force velocity thing and because it has to be, it's got to be different with all types of athletes, um, especially with the jumpers. So you get a jumper that jumps deep and then can jump very high versus the ones that only go halfway down and jump up. I, I think there's some, some a lot of variables that, that come into play with the other joints. So whether it's a force velocity with a multi-joint movement or force velocity with isolated, I'm, and then I know the joint angles from where, where the muscles are connected, 
some muscles apply more force here versus in the extended, and it's a vice. So I, it becomes more confusing the more you think about all the variables that it could be. Yeah, I think in the book you were saying too that you were like, force velocity makes sense in a mechanical Newtonian physics way, but like, you know, you're kind of like, you know, if, again, like, cause, like that kind of old genetic determinism the old sort of Newtonian way to look at the world was like you know always looking at fucking dead science whereas you were kind of saying like force velocity to you to humans that are living that are living organisms it doesn't take into account the elastic components of tissue you were, you were trying to say sure. so that's what kind of throws off the actual relation between force and velocity the, the ability that we get free kinetic energy back and that's not that's never taken into equation in a pure Newtonian force velocity curve because then obviously with a live organism they are getting this free kinetic energy back from the elastic components which, I, which well, when, when I read that I was like holy shit like this this is making a little bit of sense to me anyway yeah um I, I did read up I wish I still had I can't I, I actually I've looked for it um the difference between uh, 5,000 meter runners um I think the biggest difference between the most elite world class and the second level world class was that at 3,000 meters they, they checked strength velocity or everything they could and the only thing on the video showed that at 3,000 meters, the second level, their hips started to undulate. Mm. So at 3,000 meters, when that hip undulates, what, they, what you find is that they actually start to become more metabolic, and they have to use more energy to propel themselves forward. Yeah, yeah. So the world-class runners who are the best, they hit the ground, they use their yeah. tissue to, re, to get free energy, so they're running faster, but they're using less energy because of the tissue and everything that's involved yeah. to help propel them forward. And, so. and it dawned on me how important the tissue was. And then the neurologic, and then there's a timing of the two, the tissue and the, and the muscles working together to propel you forward. So, and I mean, I've even questioned some of the things I wrote in the book now because some of the force velocity curve, I mean, it's a very complex model. I don't think I don't know when we can account for everything that's going on. Yeah, yeah, definitely, mm -hmm. definitely. Listen, I I know too. Like I've I've had you know I've written articles and I've podcasts and I have a DVD coming out soon. And like I, what I mean by it is like I know there's information even like in lots of those materials that I put out. And you're kind of like, yeah, I don't know if I fully agree with that now either. You know, you're you're always weary. Like when someone comes back with a question, you're like, don't forget that my opinion changes on things so yes yes i mean it's there's nothing i can say that's that's going to be in that situation uh, that can't probably be disproved wrong by some theory of, of a math person who i i have no idea how deep the math goes yeah, you, you know yeah. and honestly just finishing up uh cal uh, just want to speak about your specialized means in your training so i found these very interesting too so maybe just talk about the french the french contrast method clustering and then the oscillatory method which is very interesting going back to that sort of ability to relax and contract so maybe just start with the french com com uh, contrast method so i think it's a complex there french contrast yeah. method and uh, just for our listeners what is it and how you came yeah. about it and etc so the french contrast i mean i was an experiment it basically came from giles cometti you know, people come to me and say, Cal, I love your French contrast method. Well, I'm German, and uh, I'm not French, but it did came from, uh, it was developed by Kyle's committee. I just think I refined it, placed it into triphasic, and it's essentially, you use the uh, heavy load in the eccentric or isometric phase to cause some potentiation or excite the muscles, and then you do a hurdle hop or some form of plyometrics that's really reactive, and then you go do another, let's say, um, uh, a loaded jump, 
to cause some more potentiation and do another hurdle hop or some type of other plyometric of your choosing, maybe based it upon sports-specific things needed by the athlete. And, and then you rest about four or five minutes, and then you do that again. So, and honestly, that, that's been one of the, the most beneficial methods of getting my athletes as fast as I possibly can, mm. as strong, or, you know, plus, I know it's a little conflict of, of interest, but the triphasic does make you strong, but this is also making you fast. So you're not just focusing on one isolated thing here. So I know I use block method, but the French, is a, the French contrast concepts are a little bit mixing qualities. But again, I've never seen anything work together um, that effectively. And then I've, I've progressed that into, I call potentiation clusters, where we'll do uh, one back squat. We might do two hurdle hops, two more jumps, maybe even another two more jumps on another exercise. Go back to the squat right away do one more rep of squat, do the jumps again, and then we rest five minutes. Mm. And really the key to all this is it's very high-quality training. And when I say that, it's, it's, it's basically recruiting a lots of, of fast-twitch muscle fibers at a very high level with high-quality work. They don't become too fatigued. Um, and I think that's where the benefits come out of because, uh, um, I mean, even Hank Krajinov, um would say that it's, it's, it's really isolating the fast switch muscle fibers by keeping the quality very, very high. And, and really the key to all this is high quality training will, will create neurologically and, and, and physiology more effective methods because it's about the intensity and not necessarily the sheer volume in most cases yeah. of making you better. And then your oscillatory method I found very uh, intriguing so, and you were saying that there was, you know, there was uh, advantageous versus disadvantageous position with them so can you maybe explain that to the listeners as well so again we go back to the relaxation part where media found that the best athletes relaxed their muscles as fast as you possibly can so then um, I use this example let's talk about OC's with heavy load so if I'm benching I, I go through the bench press movement and let's say I take a 300 pound bencher and he can do 270 for three reps well I'm taking him through here, and the top half is really a waste because he can, he can still push through because he's, very, he's a lot stronger. So then the OCs lets me go through a range of motion where he's his weakest, and instead of doing three reps, I can actually get six to eight in in the weakest position. Mm -hmm. So it's really just using movement and focusing in an area that you're really weak to get more reps out of so that you can get stronger in the weakest position. Now, oscillatory is at a light load, just up and down as quickly as possible. Let's go back to the ASFM method where you're just teaching the muscles to turn on and off as yeah. quickly as possible. And that's what running is, that's what sports is, is the muscles turning on, applying force as quickly as possible, and then shutting off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great, it's great stuff. I mean, last thing that I'm just going to ask you about was the, the, biomet the biometric uh, method that you use, the time sets and the tendo unit. and. You know, I know you touched on that kind of slightly earlier on. You were saying you're reading some of the Russian translate stuff and they were talking about time sets and, and the drop-off percentage and all. So maybe just get into that. How did that come about? We were like, you know, I'm going to go up this time stuff. Did it come from that track coach you were telling me about where, you know, you were, he was like, how do you know when to stop? Or Yeah, it essentially evolved from a track coach going, hey, we're going to run how many nine flying 30s? We drop off. And he's like, well, 1% to 2% drop off because we're not going to do it till Friday again, I'm going. Wow, so then uh, I think he used the 3%, I believe. So then I just started experimenting. I had one, actually, it came from necessity 
uh, pro came to me. He trained legs all summer. He was an NHL hockey player. He fought, and he hadn't done upper body with his trainer yet. And I'm going, and you're a fighter? So he, he did three reps on, on 225, and he'd, he'd been as high as 12 before. So I was like, okay. So we went three weeks of just going 1% drop-off benching every day. He'd do high-quality work. Well, at the end of three weeks, we gave him a little rest, and he did. He ended up doing 12 again really quickly. And then, and then we progressed him a little longer, and he got like to 13, 14. You're going, well, that's pretty good. So that was the start of it all. And then I, that was like eight years ago, and I just started maybe nine, and I started progressing more and more and more. And I just played with the drop-off percentages. And there's other people that have thrown it out there from Verkashansky to I think Jake Schrader even, mm. um, you know, just things like that. Uh, but ultimately, it's just so if the athlete's tired and you've identified a, a percent of drop off, let's say it's two or three percent, they may only get a small number of reps, but it kind of regulates with the state of the organism that they're in so that they don't overcome too much training. Um, to me, that's the ideal way of training. But I mean, as a strength coach, you have to realize I have 250 athletes we oversee, me and my assistants. I probably could only do that with four or five athletes a day at the most mm. so in any you know in any model unless you got the great athletes that can pay you the highest level it, it's going to be hard to implement that method mm. to the highest level Kyle you're one of the, the nicest Germans I've ever met anyway oh. <laughs> uh, you're you're very gracious with your time I really appreciate it so we'll just wrap up here because I know you have to go now in two minutes so is there any closing remarks that you want to say to the listeners you want to maybe just give your website uh, where they can find the book Triphasic Training and any upcoming projects yeah, I'm uh, XL Athlete, like extralargeathlete.com is, is where I give a lot of free stuff out. Um, I do sell the book, but, uh, you know, ultimately it's it's more about that. That's actually a training website for, for mainly the high school population, which I, 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 I've been fortunate to make an effect on. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of variables. But, you know, I do have a, the advanced trainings of, of triphasic training coming on soon. Um, I'm hoping uh, I'll send you a copy and, and uh, maybe we can get on and talk about them. But, um, you know, again, it's it, Cal Dietz is not the only person involved in triphasic. Ben Peterson, he was a great writer. Uh, he, he explained the stories very well. And then, you know, the athletes that I've been a part of and coaches, I, I've just been very fortunate to, to find this position that I'm in. So. Kyle, you're an absolute gent. I really, really appreciate it. Just stay on the line for like 20 okay. seconds after I close up here just to say goodbye. So, guys, for those of you listening, thanks a million for downloading the podcast and supporting the show and whatnot. Make sure you leave a review on iTunes so it bumps us up. So, for myself and from uh, Coach Dietz, I'm still saying that right? Am I saying it better? Yes, yes. Coach Dietz, yeah. Um, we really, really appreciate it. And uh, take care, guys. Talk to you soon and stay strong.